Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. In today's episode of History of Ideas, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, David explores the strange world of Samuel Butler's Erewhon, a topsy-turvy classic of Victorian fiction and an eerie prophecy of machine intelligence. If the machines start to control us, who or what will control the machines? One minor theme in the political thought of the 19th century is the role of New Zealand in particularly the English political imagination, because New Zealand was the furthest place away from Britain, and it was just being colonised. People were going there, crossing the earth. And so it symbolised not just the other side of the world, but a place from which it might be possible to see the world upside down or to see things that couldn't be seen from inside British society. So part of the reason New Zealand acquired this symbolic role was because of a famous line written by the historian Thomas Macaulay in an essay in 1840, in which he speculated about a future in which the British Empire that was just reaching its glory days was in ruins. Indeed, British society, British civilization had gone over the top and fallen apart. And he wrote... I quote here, about that day on which some traveller from New Zealand shall, in the midst of a vast solitude, take his stand on a broken arch of London Bridge to sketch the ruins of St Paul's. So the New Zealander became shorthand for the person who would come and see the ruins of what had once been a great civilization, that there was a part of the world where the thing that existed before would exist after. But New Zealand also played a role as the place from which it was possible to imagine things that would be harder to imagine from inside Western, European, British, imperial society. A role that it slightly plays still to this day. I mean, for many people, New Zealand is primarily the land of Lord of the Rings, this strange, familiar, but also slightly eerie landscape. New Zealand is still a place where some of the most interesting science fiction writing, utopian and dystopian, comes from. New Zealand is apparently the place where Silicon Valley tech billionaires have bought their hideaways for when the apocalypse that they're going to bring on us all comes about, they can go and live in peace and solitude. And in the middle of the 19th century, New Zealand played something like that role in the life of the person I'm going to be talking about today, Samuel Butler, because Butler went there. He took that journey. And from the other side of the world, he did see things slightly differently. Butler was born in 1835 to a very conventional Middle of England Anglican religious family. His father was a clergyman and a public school, a private school headmaster. Butler had a conventional mid-Victorian education. He went to Cambridge and he was expected to follow his father into the clergy. A life in the church awaited him and he stuck it out for a bit and he quite quickly rebelled. He couldn't face it, not least because he couldn't face devoting his life to something that he thought was essentially hollow. It wasn't just that he lost his faith. He also absolutely saw through, as he understood it, the hypocrisy of Victorian religion. And so he chucked it in. And young, aged just 23, he took a ship to New Zealand and he became a sheep farmer. And that happened in 1859, 
1859 was a significant year, not just in Butler's life, but in all of our lives in a way, certainly in the life of 19th century thought, not just political thought, because it was the year of the publication of perhaps the most important book to be published in the whole of the 19th century, Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. And Butler read it, the young Samuel Butler read it in New Zealand, and it had a profound impact on him, as it did on many people. Its impact was not the impact it had on most, perhaps, who saw in this description of how species evolve, which took God and design out of the picture, that obviously posed a direct challenge to the religious basis of much of Victorian 19th century life. It didn't, for Butler, shake his faith because his faith was already shaken. He didn't need Darwin to shake it. It was enough to have been brought up by his own father to have that shaken. It had a different kind of effect on Butler because it made him think about, in the grand sweep of evolution and the development, the change, the mutation, but also, above all, the arbitrariness of the story of all species, the randomness that Darwin put at the heart of the development of life. It made Butler think about the connection between and the difficulty of drawing the line between all forms of life, and indeed of what most people would say was not life, that is, from vegetable or plant to animal to human. But then he took the extra step. He was probably the first person to think really seriously about what it would mean to apply Darwinian thought, not just to the move from plant to animal to human, but from human to machine. What if one thought about the evolutionary story as encompassing everything, everything, inanimate as well as animate, machine as well as living? And while he was in New Zealand as a quite a successful sheep farmer, he read Darwin and then he wrote a short essay which was published as a letter in his local newspaper. So he wrote it to a newspaper in Christchurch. And it was published anonymously in 1863, though it soon came to be known that it was written by the young Samuel Butler. And it was called Darwin Among the Machines. It's short, four or five pages long, and it is one of the most remarkable pieces of writing of the whole of the 19th century. And in it, Butler speculates about what it would mean to think of machines as capable of evolving in the way that species evolve. Not least what it would mean to think about the fact that were that to happen, it was going to happen at an artificial and a breakneck speed. Indeed, he argued, it was already happening in 1863. The machines were evolving faster than living things. Human beings who had built machines, and the kind of machinery that Butler was thinking of here is mid-Victorian machinery, so steam-based machinery, the giant factories, the, the latest versions of the Industrial Revolution that was transforming the world. Human beings who had built these machines were increasingly serving these machines, indeed, in Butler's language, feeding these machines. The machines needed to be kept going by the humans, and the machines were changing and changing fast. In a human lifetime, it was possible to see a remarkable evolution or development of machinery as machine gave life to new machine and new machine and new machine. And in that essay, Butler speculates about what will happen when, as he puts it, steam engines start to breed with steam engines. 
and he speculates half playfully and half deadly seriously about a world in which machines marry machines and raise little machine children and educate them, about a world where the machines take over. And he argues in it that if you take evolution seriously and the possibility that all things evolve, but machines evolve at an artificial breakneck speed because human beings have set it up that way, and now we've lost control, it means inevitably the obsolescence of the human race. The machines will replace us. And they will replace us because they will evolve in ways that we cannot control. They will move beyond us very, very quickly. They will learn how to do things, how to think, how to imagine in ways that we cannot understand. And in 1863, Butler voiced the fears that are the fears of many people in 2021 about what happens when the machines start to think. And in that very short essay, Butler says, maybe seriously, maybe not, that there is only one solution to this. There is only one solution to the possibility that machine evolution will make human evolution obsolescent. And that is to abolish the machines. He says war must be declared on machinery. No quarter given. The machines have to be defeated because if the machines are not defeated, the machines will replace us. And that short essay, Darwin Among the Machines, is the basis, the germ, for the book that Butler wrote when he came back from New Zealand and settled into a, not exactly conventional in many ways, deeply unconventional, but on the surface at least, more conventional life in London as a writer, a man of letters, also as a speculator. He had some unfortunate business affairs that went wrong for him. In 1872, he published a book called Erewhon, Again, he published it originally anonymously, and then it was discovered that the author was Samuel Butler, and it made him famous. It was a celebrated book. It's often thought of as a utopian or possibly dystopian book, as readers quickly notice the unusual title Erewhon almost, not quite, spells the word nowhere backwards. It is a backwards utopia, a utopia being a nowhere place. Erewhon is, in many ways, Samuel Butler's masterpiece. And it contains within it a version, almost literally a version, of that much shorter essay, Darwin Among the Machines. But it's a much, much fuller book than that. And it's about much, much more than machinery. But its inspiration has something in common with Butler's response to Darwin, because what Erewhon seems to be about is using the idea of evolution and its arbitrariness, its randomness, the thought that we are the products of many thousands of generations of change over which we have no control, by which we are formed and in some sense determined, along the path of which there were little kinks and mutations that produced over time significant and profound change. Take that thought and apply it to a society like Victorian Britain, seen from the perspective of New Zealand. Because Erewhon is clearly based in somewhere that resembles New Zealand. It begins with an extended description of what is clearly the New Zealand landscape. Beautiful, but also familiar, recognisable, but also deeply strange. And it tries to give an account of what it would be like to live in a society or to encounter a society that is recognisable, seen from mid to late 19th century Victorian Britain as a society but clearly formed 
by long-distant kinks and mutations that have produced a sort of inversion of what we think is the only way that we can live. So it is a deliberately topsy-turvy world. The world, as seen from New Zealand, is a world turned upside down. And this is not world turned upside down in the sort of revolutionary sense, the turning of the wheel sense, the, the revolutionary's drinking song in Hamilton, the musical, after the Battle of Yorktown, they sing the world turned upside down because the people on the bottom have come out on top for once. Butler was not a revolutionary in any sense, certainly not in that sense. He wanted to imagine inversions of what seems like the established order to show the randomness of it, not to show the injustice of it as such, not to try and contrast it with something that makes more sense, but to suggest that the thing that we think makes sense is a product of forces over which no one has any control. So maybe it could be different, maybe it couldn't be different, but what it is at some level is arbitrary. Many of our most deeply held beliefs are arbitrary. And to understand that is to understand something about ourselves. It doesn't tell us what to do. And it may be that the implication is that there's nothing that we can do. But we should at least be very careful of thinking that we know and can control who we really are. That's Butler's argument. The book that it's probably closest to is one that was published just a year before. So Erewhon was published in 1872. 1871 was the publication of the second of the Alice books. So after Alice in Wonderland comes Alice through the looking glass. And that's what Erewhon is. It's a looking glass vision of Victorian society seen from New Zealand. It's a completely extraordinary book. It begins with the tale of a traveller, of a narrator, of, as it were, a Samuel Butler-style figure, who is clearly in somewhere that closely resembles New Zealand, and goes on a journey. He goes to adventure and explore because he's heard tale of a land over the hills, which is different, which is different from what lies on this side of the hills. So within New Zealand is the world turned upside down. He goes with a guide, a native guide, but he's abandoned, and he finds himself on his own. And he goes to the top, of a steep ridge, and he finds, for many people, where the book starts, a haunting site. There's a lot of travel writing before you get there, but plough through it. It's quite good travel writing, but plough through it until the traveller reaches the place of the statues. So he suddenly finds himself in an eerie place where what appear to be deserted giant statues whistle in the wind. They seem to be relics of some kind of lost civilization. They seem to be relics of a kind of ruined life. They are human built, but they've been abandoned. There's no evidence of the life that created them still existing. And they bring to mind all sorts of things. So this is Ozymandias. This is the great Shelley poem about the ancient king whose statue lies in the ruined sands. And that civilization is wiped away, the relic of the ruined statue. It brings to mind Macaulay and the New Zealander, the New Zealander coming to sketch the ruins of St. Paul. It brings to mind the great heads on Easter Island, the symbol then even and now of what happens when a society builds things and then loses control of itself. Easter Island is often held up as the emblem of the ways in which a society can destroy itself. Building the statues ruins, in the end, the possibility of life. But what Butler does with that image is not to suggest that what these are are the relics 
of a society that has gone beyond its own limits in an act of hubris. They are the gateway to a society that has turned itself back on itself, a society that has inverted itself. So it did indeed potentially reach a point where it was no longer sustainable. But what it did at that point was go back on itself. It did the thing that he suggests in Darwin Among the Machines, maybe seriously, maybe playfully, that humanity should do. It abolishes the machines. And the traveller in Erewhon crosses over the hills, goes past the place of the ruined whistling statues, and enters a society which is clearly not ruined, which is functioning, and which is recognisable, and has many features that the traveller understands full well. And yet there is something about it that is deeply, deeply odd. So the first sign that there's something properly weird going on here is that the traveller comes with a watch, and because he owns a watch, he arouses deep suspicion. It's made very clear to him that mere possession of a watch is some kind of illicit activity. His watch is taken away from him, and it's treated as an object of horror. So something's going on. But before he gets on to what happened to the machines, which actually comes at the end of Erewhon, it's saved right to the end, he discovers all sorts of other features of Erewhonian society, which are weird inversions of what would exist for a Victorian. The first thing that he notices is that in Erewhon, good health is treated as a virtue and ill health is treated as a crime. You will be punished for getting sick. But what for the traveller seem like crimes are treated as accidents. You will get sympathy for doing wrong. So he discovers, for instance, that if you are ill, if you have consumption, tuberculosis, you will be tried for it. You will be charged and tried and you will be punished. And the ultimate punishment for being really sick is execution. You will die for coming close to death. But if you do something that the traveller thinks is wrong, and in this case, the example in the book is embezzlement, he meets a man who has, I quote, suffered from embezzlement. Embezzlement is an accident, and he's given time to heal, to recover. You recuperate from embezzlement. You get put on trial for consumption. And there's an extraordinary scene in Erewhon where a young man is indeed put on trial for consumption. And it's a bit like the trial of Alice in Alice in Wonderland. It's recognizably a trial. It has a judge. There is an offense with which the defendant has been charged. He is charged with getting sick. The judge gives a sympathetic summing up in which he tries to say that he understands that you know, this is in many ways a tragedy, that this man, this young man in the prime of life who has got sick is going to have to be executed for his crimes. But unfortunately, there is no excuse and there is no defense. And though the young man might try to claim that he comes from a family where sickness is endemic, the judge is afraid that no society could possibly survive if it tolerated this sort of outcome. Consumption must be punished. Consumption is too dangerous not to be punished. So the consumptive is punished and the embezzler is given the possibility of a rest cure. There is an alcoholic in Erewhon. That is, there is a woman who claims to be an alcoholic. And the traveller meets her, and he discovers that she isn't really an alcoholic. Really, she's sickly. She's unwell. But she's terrified that people will discover that she is unwell. 
and she will be punished for it. So she has to pretend that the reason that she is unwell, the reason for her infirmity, is a choice on her part. She has chosen to indulge in the demon drink. Because if it's the demon drink, then she won't just not be prosecuted. She will be treated with sympathy, because that's just a misfortune. Alcoholism is a misfortune. Illness is a crime. So this woman goes off and pretends to drink. And her terror is not that she will be caught drinking. Her terror is that she will be caught not drinking. Because if she's caught not drinking, they'll know it wasn't her choice. And if it's not her choice, then it's fit for punishment. So what is this? Is this satire? It isn't really satire. There are satirical elements to it. So one of the things that Butler writes about in Erewhon, in Erewhonian society, are the reformers, the people who think that there's something really unjust about this system, that the idea of punishing people extremely with extreme punishments for illnesses is too harsh, it's too cruel. And this is a kind of satire of Benthamite reform. What I talked about in relation to Bentham, his view that in an earlier period, but not that much earlier, there was something grotesque and disproportionate about the kinds of punishments that were meted out for the kinds of crimes for which people could be executed in early 19th century Britain. And in Erewhon, the reformers say, you can't execute someone for consumption. It's grotesque. It's absurd. But of course, you do have to punish them a bit, just as Bentham says. I mean, he's not advocating the abolition of punishment. So the reformers in Erewhon say, don't be so harsh. Be kinder. Be more sympathetic. Be more proportionate. Find punishments that fit the crime. They don't say being ill is not a crime. They say to punish the crime so extremely is unfair and actually counterproductive. Of course, they say, people who are sick must be kept away from public view. They must, if they have an infectious disease, be kept away from other people who might catch it. So yes, they probably need to be in prison. But do the prisons have to be so dirty and harsh? Does the punishment have to be so cruel? And in a way, it seems that what Butler is saying with this inversion of what we think of as the natural order, we punish moral failings. We have sympathy with physical failings. What he seems to be saying is that somewhere in the middle, these perspectives meet. After all, we do shut people up for getting sick. Indeed, in 2021, we are living in just such a world, in just such an Erewhonian world. We are imprisoned in our own homes, particularly if we get sick. If you fail your COVID test, you will be, well, we don't call it punishment but you will be incarcerated, albeit in your own home, and you will be punished if you break the rules, if you leave your home. So it's not so far away from what we actually do if you have the moderate version, the moderate version of our societies in which we try not to come up with punishments that are excessively harsh, but also when it comes to illness, we do use coercion and force in order to, quote, treat it. It's not so far removed from the reformed version of Erewhonian society, which would say, well, maybe with some of these moral failings, we ought to be a bit tougher in case they are contagious. And maybe with some of these physical failings, we ought to be a bit more lenient because there's no real need to be quite so harsh when people get sick. And it is a consistent theme of not just this book, but of Butler's wider writing, that if he's arguing against anything, it's taking any position to its extremes. So for Butler, in a way, the absurdity would be either 
to live in a society which is massively punitive of moral failings or in a society that is massively punitive of physical failings. And the society that is somewhere between the two is very close to its mirror image, that when you come right up close against the looking glass, punishing people for moral failings and punishing people for physical failings are not that different from each other. And if we look at our societies, we'll see that they do come quite close, that part of the case for penal reform is to treat crime as though it were illness. And some of the arguments made on behalf of medicine treat illness almost as though it were a crime. There's another thing that this bit of Erewhon brings to mind, and it is, again, Rousseau and Rousseau's second discourse. Because in Rousseau's second discourse, he too makes a version of this argument, that in the state of nature, the only thing that is wrong is getting sick. There are no other rules as such. There are, in a way, no other standards. That the natural condition of humankind only makes one really categorical distinction, and that's between health and ill health. The difference is that Rousseau thinks that world is eradicated by the creation of society, that the creation of society, by definition, interposes on top of that another distinction, which is the distinction between rich and poor and ultimately master and slave, and therefore a version of the distinction between good and bad that relies on laws and conventions and customs and a kind of, I think Rousseau and Butler would both agree, bogus morality. What Butler does is take the Rousseauan idea of what might be natural, what could be natural, maybe what could once have been natural, and imagine a society built on that. So the thing that Rousseau thinks society necessarily abolishes in Erewhon is the basis of society. And Butler knows it will strike us as completely absurd because we think society has to be one way. But what Butler wants us to think is society could in a way be anything. We are not in control of the kind of society that emerged for us. He doesn't believe that almost in a way that Rousseau doesn't believe it. It is the series of missteps, of small steps along the evolutionary path that created what we have. And so we should at least be capable of thinking that it could be different. But above all, what he wants us to think is whatever it is, whatever society we happen to find ourselves in, we should not treat it as itself some kind of natural order. We should not treat it as itself the standard of what is good. We should always try and moderate it. We should always try and get as close as possible to the looking glass. So there are other versions of this kind of topsy-turviness in Erewhon, and some of them stand up better than others to the test of time, but they all have a kind of charm to them. It is, apart from anything else, it's a quirky book. It's a slightly annoying book. It's a deeply charming book in its way. It's very eccentric. In Erewhon, as Butler describes it, there are things that are called musical banks. So the traveller discovers that Erewhonians keep popping into banks, and in those banks they either deposit or withdraw music, which is a worthless currency. And they know you can't really buy or sell anything with music. But everyone is committed to this. It's something that everyone has to do. Everyone has to have an account at a musical bank, And everyone, at least every now and then, has to go in and either make a deposit or make a withdrawal, even though no one really believes 
that it does any good. The musical banks are churches, that is, they are substitutes for churches. And this again is, in some respects, a slightly heavy-handed satire of mid-late Victorian religion. It is certainly trying to highlight the hypocrisy because Butler says of the clerks, who could be the clerics, of the musical banks, that even they don't use the currency, even they know it's worthless. You won't even find the people who work in those banks trying to spend that money, just as he thinks the clerics of the Church of England, probably deep down, don't think it's the currency in which they actually want to trade and live, or at least that's what he thought of the ones that he knew. But there's also a kind of charm to it, a gentleness to it. He says of the musical banks that when it's pointed out that people are using them less and less, that the people who run the musical banks say, well, it's evidence of the way in which it's just woven into the fabric of society. People don't really need to use them to understand their value. Well, it looks like people aren't either depositing as much as they used to or taking out as much as they used to. That's actually evidence of the fact that they can take it for granted now. It's so part of the way they live, they don't need to make the deposits. The gentle version for Butler is always preferable to the muscular Christian version. In Erewhon, there are also universities. The universities are clearly modelled on the universities that Butler knew in England, Cambridge, the university he went to. This is, a, again, a mild and slightly heavy-handed satire of the pomposity of Oxbridge. The academics, the dons in Erewhon are faintly ridiculous figures who somehow feel certain that they're right about things and will argue about those things, even though no one actually cares what the result of the argument is. But in the topsy-turvy, through-the-looking-glass world of Erewhon, in universities, people study not just truth and reason, but they take courses in untruth and unreason. They learn how to be wrong, because, as the academics say in that world, the familiar, pompous, too sure of themselves academics, because so much in the world is wrong, because so much in the world is untrue, unknown, and uncertain, we should study it. We should study it, we should be tested on it, and we should do better in our exams the better we are at getting things wrong. It's both a ridiculous inversion, but as you come closer to the looking glass, it's also not that different from how we actually live. A gentle version of this, the moderate version of this, would bring learning about truth and learning about untruth much closer together. What Butler hates about the academics that he knew was not really what they studied or what they believed, but their certainty, their certainty that they were on the right side. This is a way of saying the best place to be is right up against the looking glass. In Erewhon, because Butler is, apart from anything else, constantly thinking about the way in which everything evolves, everything, including art. Art is also a kind of living thing for Butler, and that means not just works of art, but styles of art, genres of art, are born and live and die. In Erewhon, there are committees that have to clear up when dead art is left lying around. So in Erewhon, statues are put up. The way that the dead are commemorated is having statues put up in their honour. But the style of those statues will die. Just as the people die, art will die. And the danger is that dead art will clutter up the streets. So it's decided that a kind of cleansing committee has to be created to kill off art that is known to be dead, but won't wither away as it would if it were truly organic. So it has to be killed. And I'm sure Butler had in mind some of the art 
of mid to late Victorian society, when he wrote that, he would happily have seen some of it put to death, put out of its misery. But towards the end of Erewhon comes the bit that makes it not just a, a charming, eccentric, puzzling, amusing book, but a kind of work of prophetic genius. And that is The Book of the Machines, where he takes the argument of Darwin among the machines, and he doesn't just extend it, he also inverts that argument too. So in Erewhon, an explanation has to be given of how and why Erewhonian society got rid of the machines. And it did so because a prophet emerged many centuries earlier and told the Erewhonians where machine life was heading. It persuaded them of the case that Butler made in 1863 that war had to be taken to the machines if the human species was to be anything other than obsolescent because the machines were inevitably going to take over. And there are some brilliant lines and themes in the book of the machines given by the prophet who persuades the Erewhonians to abolish them. One of the things that he says is that when one thinks about the story of evolution, he recognises the prophet that many human beings think when they think of machines that the highest point that a machine could achieve would be to think or even to live like a human, that the evolution of machines is aspiring to the level of humanity, and that therefore there are things to be worried about if a machine acquired human-like intelligence, but it would be human-like, because to be human is the highest point of evolution. And the prophet says, if we think like that, we are thinking like vegetables, that is, earlier in the evolutionary story, imagine what it was like to be a vegetable and to see the beginnings of animal life. The vegetables probably thought, well, these very primitive animals, these mollusks or whatever they were, these amoebae, they are evolving. So they're probably evolving to the point where one day they might become vegetables because to be a vegetable is the highest point of evolution. We are to the machines as the vegetables were to the animals. If we think that machine evolution is moving towards human-like consciousness, we are very wrong. The machines are going to evolve as all things evolve, not in ways that anyone can control or foresee. And it will not end in human-like states. It will go way, way beyond them, as animal life went beyond vegetable life, and indeed as human life went beyond animal life. Machine life will go beyond human life. So if we want to be not vegetables to the animals, we need to abolish the machines. But he says, the prophet, that it will be a gradual process. We won't suddenly come to a moment where we realise the machines are taking over. Indeed, he says, the machines are already taking over. So this is, the time here is hard to grapple because he's talking about many centuries earlier in Erewhonian society, but that point was clearly something like 1870 Victorian society. He says, we've already reached this point where we are losing some of our essential characteristics to the machines. He says in a line that literally could have been written this year, people are losing their memories to their pocketbooks. They're putting their memories in their pockets, out of their brains and into their trousers, because that's where they write things down that they can't remember for themselves in exactly the same way that people say in 2021 
that the phones that we carry around in our pockets are doing too much of our thinking for us. And if we don't at least pay attention, we might soon lose the ability to think for ourselves. Butler was thinking that thought in 1872. So the prophet says, the machines have to be abolished, or not humanity will lose, but humanity will inexorably and insensibly be overtaken. And in Erewhon, the prophet is heeded, and there are terrible wars, because abolishing machinery would never be easy, and the defenders of the machines fight against the enemies of the machines. But the enemies of the machines eventually win, and Erewhon becomes a society where to possess a watch is a crime. But Butler inverts this idea too, because he also discovers in Erewhon another prophet, the prophet who tried to make the counter-argument that there was both no point and ultimately nothing to be gained by taking the war to the machines, because this is just how things evolve, that it's like fighting against nature itself, that to be human is to accept that the line between plant and animal and human and machine is always going to be blurry, and that in many ways we are already machines, that indeed the evolutionary story is a story that is coherent from top to bottom. But this prophet, who maybe is closer to what Butler actually had come to think 10 years after his sojourn in New Zealand, this prophet is not like some more recent Darwinian or evolutionary thinkers who want us to understand all the ways in which to be human is not that different from the earliest forms of life, that the end of the evolutionary story is to be understood in terms of the beginning. Butler is a more holistic or mystical thinker than that. He does it the other way around. He wants us to think about all the ways in which the early part of the story is not that different from where it ends up. He doesn't want to reduce human beings to the level of vegetables. He wants to raise vegetables and indeed inanimate objects, stones, to the level of human beings. Everything from the stone to the thinking machine, from the onion to the human being, are part of the same story. We are all part of the story of evolution. And for human beings to rail against that is futile. And indeed, the first prophet is countered by the second prophet saying, it will be utterly miserable trying to abolish the machines. The first prophet wins in Erewhon, but the second prophet, in the way that the book is structured, has the last word. And the second prophet is closer to Butler's perspective which seems to suggest that the thing we need to be wariest of is pushing any argument to its extremes. So the case for abolishing the machines, for rescuing humanity from evolution, the next stage of evolution, the thinking machine stage, the machine learning stage, we might say now, that case will always be pushed too far because it is too absolute. It places too great a priority on something that is arbitrary, And what is arbitrary here? What is arbitrary is our current conception of what it means to be human. Our current conception of what it means to be human is just the one that we happen to have now. It is not deeply or more deeply natural than any other, and it is not even more natural than that conception of the human that is to come, where human and machine are merged. At that point, that's what it'll mean to be human. And if, from our perspective, that looks entirely arbitrary. It's no more arbitrary than where we are now relative to where we once were. 
It's no more arbitrary than where we are now, as seen from the perspective of a potato. And there is at the end of Era 1, one final version of what I take to be its central theme, which is an argument against thinking that the arbitrary is fixed. And that's another kind of satire, a satire of vegetarianism or rather of veganism. So other arguments emerge in Erewhonian society when people think about the true nature of evolution and the blurring of the lines between the human and the animal, the animal and the vegetable, the vegetable and the inanimate, which is why do some people or things eat other things? And so the radical vegetarians emerge who demand that Erewhonians must stop eating flesh. They must stop eating animals because the line between the human and the animal is not sharp enough to allow it. It's the best argument for vegetarianism. And it's adopted because it seems that in Erewhon, when a prophet comes along, there is a temptation to believe the prophet and to turn prophecy into law. So meat-eating is outlawed. But there always is another prophet who will outdo the first prophet. So the vegetarian prophet is replaced by the vegan prophet who comes along and makes the case, well, if we are not going to be eating animals, we really shouldn't be eating vegetables either because vegetables are where this story started. Or at least we must be very, very careful. We must not take any vegetables from the tree. We must let them fall to the ground. We must be wary of the feelings of vegetables. If we are going to eat vegetables, we have to do it in an ethical way. We have to be the most extreme and most radical forms of vegans. And then those rules are adopted. But there comes a point in any society when an argument is pushed to its limit that it becomes impossible to sustain. And actually, even when vegetarianism becomes law, in Erewhon there are people who secretly are eating meat because they can't live like that. And as the laws become more radical and more extreme, so the hypocrisy becomes greater and greater. And in the end, the hypocrisy defeats the purity and they give up and they go back to eating meat again. And that cycle for Butler has a kind of naturalness to it, that the extreme versions of anything, of morality, of health, and for Butler there's a case for saying that people who are health freaks are not that different from people who are morality freaks. The phrase muscular Christianity really means something for Butler. Anyone who takes anything to its extreme, who says that this is my good and I will activate it to the utmost of its limits, is playing a very dangerous game because it's not sustainable, it's arbitrary, and it will produce hypocrisy in others. That is, if you get your way and you get that system adopted in your society, other people will not be able to live by it. There will be some hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is inevitable, I think Butler believes. But some forms of hypocrisy are unsustainable. Victorian religious hypocrisy for Butler was probably ultimately unsustainable unless it was moderated, in a way, unless it was inverted, unless it came much, much closer to the looking glass. Butler's fame grew after his death with the publication of his autobiographical excoriation of his own upbringing, his own religious upbringing, The Way of All Flesh. And he was seen by a number of people, Virginia Woolf, George Bernard Shaw, as one of the great truth-tellers, of Victorian societies, one of the great exposers, unmaskers, unveilers. He was one of the writers who allowed people to see through the conventions. And he had a great vogue for a while, and then it faded. 
His fame hasn't lasted. There was something arbitrary about that, and I suspect Butler would be fine with it. I suspect Butler would see the irony in the fact that his own posthumous celebrity was itself just a passing phase. And now he's a relatively obscure figure. People read Erewhon sometimes. It's usually listed among the the works of utopian fiction, but it's something other than that, I think. And it's a unique book. It's a unique book, not just in Butler's writing, but in anyone's writing. I'm not sure what its lesson is beyond this argument for being careful, for mistaking the arbitrary for the natural or the inevitable. It's definitely not nihilistic. It's not saying because everything is arbitrary, anything goes. It's almost arguing for the consolations of randomness, that knowing, understanding the ways in which we are the products of countless generations of evolution. And Butler had a problem with Darwinism that he grappled with all his life because this was trying to understand evolution before genetics, so the true arbitrariness of it wasn't properly understood. And Butler himself struggled with the arbitrariness, and he was in a different context, what's called a Lamarckian. He believed in inherited characteristics, the possibility that during a life it was possible to acquire things in the way that we behave and live that we pass on to those who come after us. And Lamarck, Lamarckianism, turns out to be wrong. But maybe it's not wrong in relation to the machines. Maybe it's at least possible that machine evolution, the characteristics that machines acquire in their lifetimes, do get passed on And that when the machines truly come to evolve and to transcend the human condition, maybe Darwinism will be transcended too. In that sense, it's all arbitrary. And what Butler wants us to do is to understand if it's all arbitrary, even our understanding of the arbitrariness, we should be careful about being zealots for any of it. Zealots for Darwinism, zealots for atheism, zealots for muscular Christianity, zealots for Benthamite reform. It's not that we should just think anything goes, but we should always think about what it would look like if we took the thing that we believed and we brought it right up close to the looking glass. More information about Butler and the other authors featured in this series can be found on our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com. In the next episode, David discusses the ideas of one of the strangest and most influential philosophers of them all. Friedrich Nietzsche. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.